Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode number 29 on hand emergency pearls and pitfalls, we have with us Dr. Laura Tate and Dr. Andrew Arcand. Dr. Tate is a plastic surgeon at the Toronto East General Hospital. She was the Chief of Surgery and Co-Program Medical Director at Toronto East General. She's an Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Toronto and has won multiple teaching awards. She was on the Chair of the Women in Surgery Initiative at the University of Toronto from 2004 to 2008. Dr. Andrew Arcand is an Emergency Physician and Chief of the Emergency Department at Markham Stouffville Hospital near Toronto. Hand emergencies account for about 5% of all emergency visits most of which are lacerations. While the majority of these visits give the ED doc a chance to take a break from the chaos and high demands of the really sick patients in the department and chillax while they sew up a simple laceration, there's a significant minority of these patients who can end up with permanent disability and even amputation if they're not diagnosed and managed appropriately in the ED. What might first appear to be a relatively benign lesion can turn out to be a devastating injury. In this episode, with the help of Dr. Andrew Arcand and Dr. Laura Tate, we'll give you the tools necessary to pick up on these sometimes tricky diagnoses and manage them like a seasoned pro. We'll also give you the answers to some apparently simple questions we're faced with almost daily in the ED, like which patients with lacerations need antibiotics, for example. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Laura Tate. Hello. Welcome. Hello. And Dr. Andrew Arkand. Thanks for having me. Great. So let's jump right into our first case. The first case is that of a 19-year-old man who presents to your ED on a Sunday afternoon with right hand pain since waking up that morning. He's not sure how he was injured, but he does admit to being very drunk the night prior. On exam, there's about a one-centimeter laceration over the dorsal aspect of his fifth metacarpal with a lot of swelling and tenderness around the lac. So, Dr. Tate, can you review for us your quick and easy neuro exam that you do for patients who have sustained a laceration to the hand? All right. Well, I uh, like to start with um, the three main nerves on the hand. And I like the uh, question is, does this feel normal? Because oftentimes people can feel something. It may be less than perfect, and it's hard for them to give you an idea. Sometimes you can compare with the other hand if the person's not sure. And the question is, does this feel normal? And you're going to feel on either side of the finger because some sides of the finger may have a laceration on one side and you're checking the digital nerve on each. So for the radial nerve, we like to check the first dorsal web space, uh, the median nerve, the tip of the index finger, and the ulnar nerve, the tip of the small finger. And then as I say, if it's a laceration on the volar surface and you're worried about digital nerves, then we'd be checking on each side of the finger. And just document whether there's decreased sensation. Okay, so that's the sensory exam. And what about the motor exam? The motor exam, well, with median nerve, we're testing the thenar muscles. So what I usually do is get the person to try to lift their thumb up into the mid-palm while you're pressing some resistance against it. And uh, that tests your thenar muscles. For radial nerve, we get the person to lift their wrist and extend it backward. And for the ulnar nerve, we usually get them to cross their fingers or grip onto a piece of paper, pinch it. And when they're pinching that paper, you want their IP of their thumb to stay straight. If it tends to flex, that's called a positive Froman sign, and that's a weak 
ulnar nerve. Okay. The one that I learned uh, for the ulnar nerve was the patient spreading their fingers out like a fan. Yeah, that's another and you, one. you try and push them push back them together. together. Yeah. Okay, so it's that's another... It's a little harder sometimes to get the feel of that. So the cro- it's, they're, all those three are great, okay. great ones. I like the cross fingers if they can do it. And that Froman's is a pretty accurate one too. So just to cross their fingers over yeah. each other. Yeah, just the index and long finger. So let's do a quick review of the quick and easy neuro exam of the hand. And let's start with sensation. Light touch is probably fine for the emergency department, but if it's equivocal, you should use two-point discrimination, and the normal would be five millimeters or less on the volar fingertips. And remember to compare to the other side. When you do ask a question for sensation, it's better to ask, does this feel normal rather than can you feel this? You're more likely to find the deficit this way. So how do you test the radial nerve, median nerve, and ulnar nerve? For the radial nerve, test sensation in the first dorsal web space. For the median nerve, test sensation at the tip of the index finger. And for the ulnar nerve, test sensation at the tip of the pinky finger. And don't forget that for volar injuries of the fingers, the digital nerves run along either side of the volar aspect of the finger, so you need to check for sensation on both sides of the finger. Well, how about the motor exam? To test the radial nerve, have the patient extend their wrist like a police officer would do to stop traffic. Make sure they're extending their thumb and their fingers as well, and test this against resistance. And finally, there's the ulnar nerve. There's three different ways to test the ulnar nerve. The first one is to have the patient try and spread their fingers out like a fan against resistance. The second one is to have the patient cross the index and long fingers. And the third one is to have the patient try to hold a piece of paper between their thumb and index finger while you attempt to pull it away. If they flex at the IP joint while trying to hold on to the piece of paper, they likely have an injury to their ulnar nerve. And that's called a positive Froman sign. Next, Dr. Arkan is going to talk more specifically about the so-called fight bite. And Dr. Arkan, often patients aren't willing to admit that they punch someone in the mouth, for example, like probably what uh, our patient who was drunk on a Saturday night might have done with this laceration on his knuckles. What questions do you ask in your history in order to reveal that a patient might have had a so-called fight bite or open boxer's fracture? So I probably start, unfortunately, by presuming that that was the mechanism of injury. So given this case in particular, somebody who was out the night before with this injury, I would approach the scenario considering that that might be a possibility. I might actually normalize it, saying, hey, it's not uncommon for folks when they're intoxicated or out partying to get into some kind of altercation. Did that happen to you? Phrase it in that way. I would absolutely review the nature of the confidentiality of our doctor-patient relationship to try to enable someone to feel comfortable telling me what happened and have them understand that I obviously couldn't share that information with anybody. And uh, failing that, I, I think if I, if I was still concerned, I'd uh, sort of play the severity card that a laceration from a punch into someone's face might have significant implications for a long-term outcome and it would change what we were going to do at the time. And missing that mechanism of injury might put, put this patient or this person at significant risk for infection or other adverse outcome and, and try to illustrate to them that telling me the truth would be really helpful. Barring that, if I still had the sense that, that there was an altercation, I might actually taper my management, presuming that that may have happened 
uh, if I thought that the patient wasn't being upfront with me, despite those tricks or techniques. All right. So, Dr. Tate, th- this patient that we're talking about had this one centimeter unimpressive laceration on his on his knuckles. Why can this be deceptive for the practicing ED doc? And why do we worry about this apparently innocuous laceration? Well, just as Dr. Arkham was saying, we're worried about the underlying structures and if there's any infection that could have got in there with a tooth or even just on the surface of the skin around the joint. So we're worried about a septic arthritis in the future if it's not picked up. So the skin over that area is, is just thin with just the joint surface underneath and with the fingers flexed, there's not much distance between the skin and your right into the joint. And when the person straightens their finger again after the punch, the, the tear isn't really visualized that easily just under the skin. So it's something that sometimes needs to be explored. Essentially, you have to assume this is going to develop into septic arthritis until proven otherwise. My understanding is that about 10% of these people with a little laceration from a fight, bite, as they call it, will end up with septic arthritis if they're not treated properly. Mm-hmm. While this patient with a fight bite will need antibiotics, almost definitely, we don't give prophylactic antibiotics to everyone with a simple laceration of the hand. Is there any role for prophylactic antibiotics for patients with uncomplicated, simple lacerations of the hand? What does the literature say about prophylactic antibiotics for simple lacs of the hand? So certainly most of our practice patterns is not to include prophylactic antibiotics for simple hand lacerations, and in fact, the literature does support it. There are five studies that demonstrate that uh, antibiotics for simple hand lacerations won't impact any outcomes in any meaningful way, uh, even though the hand is potentially at higher risk for infection than other parts of the body, such as the face, for example. But again, it's all about clinical context. Deep puncture uh, injuries, crush injuries, uh, injuries that may need an operative intervention, and patients who are immunocompromised, you need to use your judgment. So for simple, uncomplicated hand lacs in immunocompetent patients, we should not be giving prophylactic antibiotics as a general rule. However, for patients with conditions placing them at higher risk for infection, like those that are severely immunocompromised or those with deep puncture wounds with a dirty instrument, clinician judgment should factor into the decision-making, and some of those patients might require prophylactic antibiotics. What also needs to be taken into consideration is that about 10 to 20% of patients will develop fungal vulvovaginitis or diarrhea or other adverse effects as a result of taking antibiotics. Next, Dr. Arkan is going to talk about prophylactic antibiotics when it comes to animal bites in particular. So I think, again, the clinical context is important. And interestingly, the site of the bite is, is likely the most powerful predictor with respect to the risk of infection. The systematic review of eight randomly controlled trials, six of which uh, had patients just with dog bites, and there were no clear benefits to antibiotics use overall. However, bites to the hand had a far higher rate of infection than those in the control group, and these almost certainly will benefit from prophylactic antibiotics. In fact, based on uh, this review, the number needed to treat for overall for, for bites was 26, but for hand it's just four. So it clearly demonstrates that there's a, a strong role for this. Okay, so we should be giving antibiotics for animal bites to the hand. Are there any other subpopulations with animal bites that we should be giving antibiotics for? Yeah, so clearly those who are immunocompromised, bites directly over joints, consider prophylactic antibiotics. Deeper bites and or potentially if there's significant tissue damage, so crush injury the tissues you might consider as well. 
Okay. So for the, for the patient who gets a bite, let's say on the upper arm, it's not very deep, relatively superficial laceration or a, not a deep puncture wound, those patients don't need antibiotics. They shouldn't need antibiotics in that in the situation okay. that you and so the people the people who do need antibiotics from an animal bite are those that get bitten in the hand, those that are immunocompromised, and those are bitten over a joint, or that's obviously you know has destroyed a lot of tissue. Doctor Tate, so now we know who needs antibiotics and who doesn't for lacerations. What about whether to close the wound or leave it open to heal by secondary intention? You know, traditionally we've been taught that animal bites we should leave open to heal by secondary intention. What's the current practice now? What do you suggest for our listeners? We still like to leave them open. Uh, We give a really, really good clean, and then we're leaving them open, splinting and elevating. Occasionally, if it's really gaping, we might put one nylon stitch just to kind of in the middle of it or something so it's not so gaping, but we'd never put a nice suture line that we would do for a regular laceration. What about lacerations of the face where cosmesis is, right. is so really important? Ones, the, those ones we do tend to, again, put some tacking sutures in. We really spend a lot of time irrigating. And it depends a bit on the wound as well. Like cat bites and dog bites are so different. You know, a cat bite is more of a puncture. So we would never really close a cat bite. Because those are usually deep puncture wounds and they're hard to clean. If someone has a fish hook or something like a nail that goes through their hand or whatever... Those ones you might put on antibiotics because you're not really able to clean the wound through and through. So those might be another category that we haven't talked about. So a cat bite on a, uh, on a face, uh, we really would close a cat bite. But a dog bite, when there's, it's more of a gripping and a tearing, so the wound is more open. So you are able to give it a better clean. And then on a face, we would try to tack some of it together so that it wasn't just gaping. But we wouldn't still do a plastics closure as you maybe quotation marks i see so you kind of partially close it yeah just a single layer always just a single layer just the skin Mm -hmm. you know okay so in that case you you'd leave more space than you usually do between the sutures yes so that there's somewhere for the infection to escape sort of yeah and then you tell the person you know what to watch for for the signs of infection so they can get back in and you might even have a a closer follow-up date for them you know you might see them the next day or so just to be sure that they're on the right path, because you could take that stitch out easily if if you needed to. Sure. So, Dr. Tate, let's say you've got a patient with a finger laceration and you decide to do a digital nerve block. The classic teaching when it comes to using lidocaine with epinephrine is that you should avoid the fingers, nose, toes, and penis. Yet, I see plastic surgeons using epinephrine to do their digital blocks all the time, do you recommend using epinephrine for digital nerve blocks? A few years ago, Dr. Lalong in, uh, on the East Coast did a study with adrenaline in, in his digital blocks, and he used residents and staff people to test it out. It showed that that probably was a bit of an old wives' tale, that you can use adrenaline in digital nerve blocks in patients that don't have vascular compromise, such as scleroderma or Berger's disease or obviously an ischemic finger frostbite or a burn, those kind of things where you're worried about their circulation. So just a regular laceration, you can use the adrenaline for fingers. And it helps cut down on your bleeding so you can see the structures better underneath. Mm -hmm. One one of the other things that we do for controlling bleeding and just for visualization is sometimes just take a glove, cut off a finger, and tie it around the base of the finger as a tourniquet. 
And that helps you when you're trying to explore. Is there tendon involved? Have a look inside. So that's okay. helpful. So that's in terms of using lidocaine with epinephrine for a digital block. Yeah. Um, how about if you've decided that you want to put lidocaine in the finger itself in, within the laceration? Yeah, that's fine. Um, can you use epinephrine in that? Yeah, we do, as long as it doesn't one of those patients that I mentioned before, scleroderma or something. Okay, so like same, same, same thing applies But most then. of the time, you know, it's, it's more comfortable for the patient to do a digital block than to inject right into the finger laceration. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, on the rest of the hand, you usually inject into the laceration. Yeah. But for a finger, I think it's seems to be more comfortable to uh, do a digital nerve block than try to inject right into the finger. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of digital nerve blocks. Yeah. When it comes to digital nerve block, there's the classic two-needle technique where you go on either side of the finger from the dorsum mm-hmm. so that the digital nerves, you're going directly over the digital nerves that are on either side of the finger. There's also the one-needle technique which technique would you suggest that our listeners use? Well, I, I like, the, again, that's that Dr. Long study with the single needle just above the, the proximal digital skin crease. So just distal to the skin crease, you can under the skin and just a single needle in there. And you only need maybe two cc's. And it seems to do a really good job on your digital nerve innervation. So you can do the whole volar surface of the finger and also around the nail with that one needle. So it's kind of nice. Now, if you have something just around the dorsum of the finger between the PIP and the MCP, I'm not sure. It might not get that as well. So sometimes those ones I'll, I'll do the old-fashioned kind of dorsal to injection technique because you can put a bit more local in the dorsum. The other thing is to remember is that the nails for your index, long, ring, and small fingers are covered by your median nerve, but on the thumb, it's actually covered by a radial nerve. So if you've got something around the base of the nail of the thumb, then you need to do the old technique with the two needles as well to make it more effective. Okay, so the thumb is is, a, is an exception to an the one-needle rule. And Dr. Arkan, when it comes to our run-of-the-mill laceration anywhere on the body, there seems to be a lot of variability in what docs choose to clean the wound. What should we use to clean laceration wounds in general? So once your patient is appropriately anesthetized, first step would be to clean the wound, and most of us would have access to a chlorhexidine-based cleaning solution or an iodine-based cleaning solution, and you would start with that. So to clarify here, when you prep the wound, you want to clean the skin around the wound with chlorhexidine or with iodine. When it comes to choosing between chlorhexidine and iodine, there was a meta-analysis and review done in the BMJ in 2010 for preoperative antisepsis technique. And they concluded that chlorhexidine was the better agent to use. So again, when prepping your wound, use chlorhexidine to clean the skin around the wound. Next, Dr. Arkan is going to be talking about irrigation of the wound, which is different than prepping the skin around the wound. The other piece that's really important is to do a great job in irrigation, and it almost certainly will have an impact on the outcome of your patients with respect to infection risk. When you're irrigating, there's good evidence to suggest that tap water is as effective as as saline. There's four studies that demonstrate that. It's important not to to soak the wound. Soaking the hand wound can uh, increase the bacterial count. If you're going to clean the wound, real irrigation is is important. And in fact, you have to generate a certain amount of uh, pounds per square inch, a certain amount of pressure. So as described, you need a, you know, a 30 to 60 cc syringe or smaller with an 18 gauge catheter to generate enough force 
to impact the bacterial count. So I think irrigation is probably the key message. Folks are using alcohol. It's probably not an acceptable way to cleanse wounds. Alcohol can be cytotoxic to normal cells and may impact healing and cause some inflammation. So I would avoid alcohol as a cleaning solution. And then, Dr. Tate, what if, the, what if the wound is obviously really contaminated, a really dirty wound, maybe a road rash or something where there's little bits of dirt in there? How do you clean those wounds? Well, we usually try to get the person over to the sink and use one of the surgical scrub brushes. That has, it could be chlorhexine or betadine-based. So it's got the scrub brush right on there. Of course, they're anesthetized, so you can give it a really good brush out, and uh, we would combine that. Once we've done a good scrub, and the other point I wanted to mention is too, when you have a hand when you're cleaning, you might you're just going to clean the whole hand, you know, not just that little area, so that when you go to uh, ha- wrap your towel around the hand, then you've got your sutures. Uh, if it touches another part, you know, it's hard to suture without the suture touching other areas. So just prep the whole hand rather than just that little area. So that's a useful tip. And so uh, once we've scrubbed the uh, hand in the sink, we. We, uh, sometimes they have now those little squirt bottles of saline that you can just take the top off and use that as an irrigation. It gets some good turbulence going. Really, you want turbulence. Dr. Arkan, we, we see tons of patients with simple hand lacerations in the ED, and so far we've learned that they don't require prophylactic antibiotics for the most part, and that tap water can be used to clean them. My next question when it comes to hand lacerations is, which hand lacerations do we not have to suture at all? So you can consider allowing certain lacerations to heal on their own without uh, suturing. Uh, The BMJ in 2002 reviewed 95 simple lacerations, less than 2 centimeters, and not high-risk scenarios, so not immunocompromised patients, not bites, none with uh, gross contamination, and not puncture wounds. And they didn't put sutures in in these wounds. And uh, there's no difference in cosmetic outcome at 3 months and no functional difference returning to activities. So in very simple, small lacerations, you could consider not closing them. Of course, you'd have this conversation with your patients. And Okay, so the, the literature says that for, for lacerations less than two centimeters, in patients who aren't immunocompromised, uh, if they're not bites, if they're not grossly contaminated, if they're not deep punctures, so they're just simple, small lacerations, that not sewing them will have as good outcome. Um, I guess it also depends on, you know, if the patient's a construction worker and they're using their hands constantly, you probably want to lean towards suturing them. And if it's right over a joint, you might want to lean towards suturing them as well. But I love that study because there's anything that'll save me another 10 minutes in the emergency department is, is great. Well, and how often do you have a patient who says, Doc, I can just let this heal on its own, can't I? And actually our teaching usually is, no, 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 we should do something. And in fact, we, we may not need to do something. Right. I'd also describe to them that they will get a bit of granulation tissue. So I saw a case today where a gentleman had a laceration on his finger that was not closed, and he had some nice pink granulation tissue and was worried that this was infection, when in fact it was actually healing fine. So if you prefaced that decision, explaining what the nature of their wound will look like to reassure them that there will be some pink raised areas that might assist in a repeat visit for someone. Let's get back to our case of a young man who punched someone in the mouth, most likely. For this guy, an x-ray was done, which showed a fifth metacarpal neck fracture with 40 degrees of angulation, a so-called boxer's fracture. Now this patient has a boxer's fracture with an open wound in close proximity. In other words, he's 
got a fight bite. How do you manage fight bites differently than closed run-of-the-mill boxer fractures? Having a high index of suspicion and a high level of, of concern at first assessment is key to start with. Well, we're so worried about infection. We usually use a, a, a sign called telescoping. If the person doesn't have a fracture, you can kind of put a little compression on the joint. And if it's if they really jump or move, then you know, well, that's, that's a sign of a septic arthritis. So those people you're going to actually take maybe to minor surgery, put some freezing, can open up the wound and irrigate it and all that. If they have negative telescoping, you might just put them on their antibiotics PO if there's no redness. But if it's red already, then you're going to start IV antibiotics. So once you have a fracture thrown in there, they would be on IV antibiotics, splinted. You'd irrigate the bejesus out of the wound, leave it open, and you would try to reduce it. And then close follow-up, splinting and elevation. Now, if they came in with infection already, then we would want to be called and we probably would come in and irrigate it and explore the wound and probably admit them for IV antibiotics splinting and elevation. So in terms of the laceration, we'd leave them open to heal by secondary intention. Absolutely. We'd get an x-ray and look for any foreign bodies like chipped teeth and that kind of thing. Copious irrigation, definitely antibiotics for all these patients. You can probably get away with oral antibiotics if they come in early enough, but if there's any signs of infection, then IV antibiotics. Mm Okay. The other thing, too, I wanted to point out is to, just to make sure if you do a reduction, also to do a post-reduction x-ray, because that's really important just medical legally, and also we have to do it anyways when they come to the clinic. So it's nice to, for you to document the good reduction that you, you get. Absolutely. So, Dr. Arkan, let's, let's talk more specifically about metacarpal fractures themselves. Why is it so important to assess for rotational deformity for metacarpal fractures, and how do you assess for rotational deformity? This is a good pearl that if if it's not part of your routine practice in evaluating these patients, it really should be. Patients who have rotational deformity are at higher risk of malunion and permanent disfigurement. They may actually wind up with uh, disability of grip strength. If you see somebody in the ED with some rotational deformity and there's a weight to reduce it, they may wind up with a more invasive corrective osteotomy to repair the actual injury. So it's important to recognize it at first presentation. Do your best to improve it with reduction. And if you're unhappy with the outcome, ensure that they have reliable follow-up. So when you're assessing rotational deformity, it's, it's important to do, obviously, and, and you may not be able to appreciate that on, on an image. So it's a clinical assessment. And there's a couple of ways, different ways to do that. could have the patient make a fist, and in doing so, all the phalanges should point to the scaphoid. This works if there's not pain or swelling that would limit the patient making a fist. The other thing that you could do is look for rotation of the fingernails when you look head-on at the fingers when they're in extension. It's important to understand also that some patients with soft tissue injury and even without an injury can have some rotational deformity, and many people have asymmetrical hands so that you can't always compare to the uninjured side. Yeah, I mean, I, when I looked at the literature with this, um, it showed that there's actually quite a variability and that there are quite a few people who normally will have a bit of rotation. And so doing the test where all the, where the patient makes a fist and all the fingers are supposed to point towards a scaphoid can sometimes be misleading. One of the things I read was that it might be more accurate to have the patient flex all their fingers at the MCPs together and then just look for rotational deformity at the fingertips. 
So there's sort of three different ways of doing it. You can have the patient try and make a fist where the, all the fingers point towards the scaphoid. There's looking at the fingers end on when they're all together. And then there's also having the patient flex all the MCPs and then just looking for scissoring or any obvious rotational deformity when they do that. So most of these boxers fractures have a degree of angulation of the fracture. And you need to know what the acceptable degrees of angulation for a true boxers fracture are. You should know that the fifth MCP joint, which is the most mobile, also tolerates the most volar angulation. So the acceptable degrees of angulation for a true boxers are 40 degrees for the fifth finger, 30 degrees for the fourth finger, 20 degrees for the third finger, and 10 degrees for the second finger. Dr. Tate's now going to talk about why it's so important to reduce these fractures. And yeah. more than that, then when they're fracture heels, they have a prominence of the head and their palm when they grip onto things. So especially for people that are laborers and things like that, it can be symptomatic for gripping onto a shovel or a hammer or whatever. Dr. Arkin, can you run through for us how you reduce metacarpal fractures? Sure. I think this is bread and butter for most emergency physicians. And I think the longer you, you work, the better you get at it. With any reduction, anesthesia is really important. So uh, in this situation, an ulnar nerve block is a great option. Uh, you might consider doing a metacarpal block as an alternative, but that often adds some soft tissue swelling that you don't need as these injuries are often swollen at the fracture site. So a, a mnemonic you might want to use is TRAMP. Re reducing any fracture, you need traction. So you may have enough force uh, on your own to uh, distract the angle of the injury. You may find some benefit from finger traps. If your department has those, it's, it's nice to put your patient in those. You can go do other tasks and then come back and you essentially have some traction that's happened without much bedside interaction. The reduction itself, you can use direct pressure. I think, I think the key is really to understand where the fracture is and, and really push uh, palmarly on the distal end and, having, and have some um, counter leverage more proximally with your either your thumb or another finger, so you can kind of push uh, the distal part of the fracture back up to more a more anatomical alignment. You can also have the MCP at 90 degrees and use the, the finger uh, to, to wedge that reduction back up to an anatomical position as well. You then need to put a splint on, and more importantly, and most importantly, these can often slip. So it's really important once you've splinted your patient uh, with plaster, to push up on the metacarpal head palmarly with counterpressure dorsally and really enable your, your mobilization to be effective. So take some time to mold that plaster in a position that, that prevents that reduced fracture from slipping. The position of your, of your splint or cast is really, really important, and you need the MCP inflection uh, as close to 90 degrees as possible. You want your IPs in extension. And what this does is it prevents the shortening of the collateral ligament. What happens when your fingers are extended to the collateral ligament, it actually loses tension and can shorten and you can wind up with some stiffness. But having things at 90 degrees enables that uh, collateral ligament to uh, be stretched out to prevent uh, stiffness and improve your recovery after your splinting is done. Uh, one little tip I wanted to give also is that uh, once we see people back with their splints, coming off in a few days and uh, unless there's some gauze between the fingers they often have a bit of a rash or intertrigo between the fingers it's 
uncomfortable. So we always recommend that when the fingers are taped together, put a dry gauze between the fingers. And that really makes it a lot more comfortable post-operatively and it prevents any plaster burns too. Before we go on from hand fractures, Dr. Tate's just going to emphasize how important it is to have these patients followed up early with your hand specialists. Probably every hand fracture should be seen within the week in a plastics clinic pretty well. And sometimes the clerks are making the appointments and the clinic is full and they just put it in the next one after or someone's on holiday and it gets to be two weeks before they're seen in the clinic. And then that's really too long because then if we have to organize surgery or it's already healed and you can't read if you want to do a reduction or something, it's too late. So really those hand fractures, we want to get seen in our clinic within a week. So Dr. Tate, we've talked about simple lacerations of the hand. Let's talk now about the big, bad, ugly lacerations, ones with potential for a tendon injury. Can you review for us the essentials of assessing for a tendon injury in the hand on physical exam? Just like the human bite example that we first talked about, it's about having some suspicion, you know, with the laceration and thinking of the underlying anatomy. So when we're checking for flexor tendons of the finger, for finger lacerations, or even wrist lacerations, we're, we're trying to assess the anatomy underlying. So for uh, flexor digitorums, sublimus tendons, that's inserting at the PIP joint. So you can extend the other fingers and just get them to flex that finger. And I usually don't use resistance because I'm just worried about it rupturing. And either the person can do it or they can't. Uh, if they do it and it's painful, I just would document that. You're going to be looking in the wound a bit anyway. But I don't really like to test against resistance because if you've got something that's 90%, it may pop it. And how much resistance do you use? It's not, we usually don't use that. We just, can they do it or not? For the profundus tendon, you're going to hold the finger straight at the PIP joint, support the PIP in extension, and ask them to flex the tip of the finger. So that's your flexor digitorum profundus tendon. Now, people often don't have a sublimus tendon to their little finger. And so rather than thinking that they may have a laceration there, you want to check their other hand. That's a way to check it as well. And for the thumb, the flexor pulse, as long as you're just going to ask them to flex the, the tip of the thumb. So those are the common ones. And for the wrist, you're going to rest, ask them to flex your carpi ulnaris and radials. You're going to flex the wrist and feel over the tendon, see if you can feel the tendon and continuity in that area. So for the extensor tendons, we're asking people to straighten their fingers and we want to make sure that they can extend them at the MCP as well as the DIP and PIP. Okay, so just to review there, the flexor digitorum profundus is the one where we flex the DIP, just the tip of the finger, while the rest of the finger is held straight. And the flexor digitorum superficialis, which you were referring to as flexor digitorum sublimus, you flex the PIP while all the other fingers are held in extension. And sometimes for the fifth finger, some people won't be able to do it, and so you need to compare it to the other side. Okay. All right, so Dr. Tate, there is some controversy as to which tendon lacerations of the hand should be repaired in the ED and which should be splinted and referred for delayed repair. Some experts say not to repair any flexor tendons and only repair extensor tendons that are completely lacerated where you can clearly see the ends. Some literature says that we should not repair extensor lacerations that are as high as 75% cut but should repair partial lacerations that are more than 75%. In your practice, 
which tendon lacerations should be repaired in the ED by the ED doc and which should be splinted and left for the hand surgeon to repair later. One of the um, criteria is that, you know, these are sometimes tricky to get the ends together and and you often need an extra pair of hands. And so we, most of these ones, we're kind of taking to minor surgery and doing them with a, you know, a couple people helping out, tourniquet and all that. It takes a fair amount of time. So I think that in emergency room that it's fair enough that if the if it's a partial laceration that's like over 50% and you can see the ends nicely, it's great. You can put in a horizontal mattress stitcher, stitch in there and going to close the skin and splint them and refer them on. But I think to try to find the, the proximal end of an extensor tendon, it often retracts a fair bit. You have to extend the incision. And I think it's too much for one person to do down there and emerge. So we don't mind having the wound just clean, sutured, splinted, elevated, and have them come back to a minor surgery appointment. I don't think any flexor tendons really should be done in emergency. Those ones all pretty well. Those ones all we take to the operating room. Okay. So the ones that we should consider doing in the eMERGE are extensor tendons where we can see the ends clearly and that are cut at least 50%. Yes. Okay. So the ones that are cut less than 50%, we can leave those and just splint them. Mm -hmm. If the emergency doctor does decide to repair an extensor tendon in the ED, what tips can you give our listeners about the technique for repair? Some surgeons recommend using simple sutures. Others recommend using figure of eights or running horizontal mattress sutures. What, what do you think the best is in terms of extensor tendon repairs? Well, the extensor tendons are not that vascularized, and the fibers are running longitudinally. So we would use a horizontal mattress. We wouldn't use a simple suture running or a figure of eight because those tend to just pull through a bit. So you're doing a horizontal mattress always for those. We use permanent stitches, so a Tycron or something like that. Uh, Mersaline, those would be the two for your tendon sutures. And if the laceration is over the finger, it doesn't really retract as much. You know, where if it's over the dorsum of the hand, it can retract a bit more. So it might be easier to do uh, extensor tendon lacerations more over the finger than it is over the dorsum of the hand. Now, one other part uh, that's uh, particular has its own little history is right over the DIP joint and in that area you really can't see the extensor tendon separated from the skin so when it's right over the DIP what we usually do is a 3-0 nylon right through the skin into the tendon from top to bottom and then bottom to top on the other side and out through the skin so it's like dermal tendon kind of a suture so we just do interrupted big three O nylon stitches through there and then hold it with a mallet splint. And that's a little different from your extensor tendons. You do the rest of the hand. And always remember that there's two extensor tendons for the index finger and the long finger. And another point I'd like to make is really you don't want to trim the tendon end because you need all of the length of it. And it's very difficult to trim the, the tendon in the operating room when we do sometimes have to trim though. We use like a razor blade, which you wouldn't have in emergency. We don't really use a regular scalpel blade. So really, we wouldn't recommend doing any trimming. It just gets ragged very easily and difficult to manage. And also we want to, we almost try to do a no-touch technique a lot on the tendons because we're trying to minimize the trauma to them because they're so avascular. So the the minimal amount of touching the tendon with your forcep and moving it around to try to minimize as much as possible. If you're going to grip it once, grip it once and try to hang on to it for all your manipulations rather than gripping it, you know, four or five times. There's one more trick that you can do is 
the proximal end of the tendon, if you see it, it tends to retract, but you can pull it forward into the wound and use a, like a 21-gauge needle and stick it through the skin and into the tendon so it, it holds it into your wound because often the person's kind of moving around a bit or they may be, so you don't want them to move and retract it back again. So you can use that as a little um, anchor anchor mm-hmm. yeah, through the skin and the tendon and it holds into the mm-hmm. wound because the extensor tendon ends have to be really just sitting nicely together when you put your sutures. You can't really be trying to cinch it in with your suture material or it just it just pulls right through. So before you put your sutures in, you want to have the two ends sitting nicely in that position. Another idea that we uh, use in minor surgery is that we have our splint kind of pre-made so that when the tendon repair is done, because we don't want the person to bend or move or anything, and often it is under a little bit of tension, so we can get the person to hold their fingers back a bit, and then we have the splinting material already measured and layered and ready to go. So you just take it, wet it, and put it right on. So by planning ahead of time, uh, have that ready before you start to put your sutures in so that they take the tension off the repair while you're putting on the splint. And you have to tell them, do not remove that splint because I usually explain to them the tendon doesn't have much uh, much circulation and it's all like an electric cord so it can pull through. And the repair that we're doing now is the very best it can be. And if it has to be done, if it pulls out, it's it's never the same. It's all mushy and you're not going to have a good result. So they should be seen within the week for their plastic surgery clinic so that it can still be organized. Most of us have our minor surgery time closely tied to our clinic time. So for me, my clinic is Wednesday and Thursday is my minor surgery. So anybody I see on Wednesday, I can put them, fit them in on Thursday. So you can tell them that they have usually about a week you know, for the tendon to still be repaired without any repercussions as far as infection or delayed healing. It's not like a fracture. One of the things we really appreciate when we see people back in the clinic, if it's a partial wound, is for the eMERGE doc to give a an estimation of what percentage they think the tendon is lacerated. Is it 10%, 50%, you know, 70%? Because that often changes our management significantly. Let's move on to case number two. Dr. Arkand, you're attending U of T's Whistler Emergency Medicine Conference, and you bump into your colleague's wife, who's just come off the ski slopes after a fall onto her ski pole. She tells you that she can barely move her thumb, and she wonders whether she should get an x-ray. What diagnosis are you most worried about in this patient, and why? So this scenario actually happened to me with my brother-in-law where I got a phone call remotely and I have this injury, what should I do? And just by discussing the nature of it over the phone, it was clear that that he needed an assessment. So this person absolutely needs an assessment. And what you're describing is almost certainly going to be a skier's thumb or a gameskeeper's thumb in, in another name. So this sounds like this person has fallen with a ski pole with a lateral or valgus strain to the MCP joint. And that's a significant mechanism of injury because it can result in an injury to the ulnar collateral ligament of the MCP joint. This is a gameskeeper's thumb, would be the traditional name. And you do need an x-ray in answer to your question because the risk is that with this injury, you can have an evulsion fracture of the base of the proximal phalanx, which is a gameskeeper's fracture. And the name gameskeeper is always really interesting to discuss 
because it stems from the Scottish gameskeepers who injured their ulnar collateral ligament with repetitive hyperextension of the neck of the animal straining as they killed their fowl. The original name Gamekeeper's Thumb was actually from a repetitive Repetitive strain, so it's more of a chronic injury. Right, and most of the most of the ones we see in the eMERGE are, are skiers or whatever is going to put stress on that ulnar collateral ligament, so any valgus force to the thumb. So, so these injuries, the games, gameskeeper's thumb or skier's thumb, are important to recognize and pick up early on the initial assessment, either in the ED or, or primary care, for a couple of reasons. If, the, if they're missed, they can result in long-term issues with grip strength. And the other piece is that often they may require surgical repair. So picking them up at first presentation and referring them on to the appropriate consultant is essential in care providers. Right. So even if you don't see a fracture uh, on the x-ray, this can sometimes not just be a, a simple strain. Some of these actually need surgical repair even in the absence of a fracture. I actually think it's really difficult to tell in the ED at first presentation. So the key is to understand the mechanism of injury, examine your patient well, image them to ensure there's no evulsion fracture, splint them, and ensure they have follow-up. Okay. You mentioned examining them well. What do you look for when you examine a patient to see whether their MCP is unstable or not? So I would start first by seeing if they're actually tender at the ulnar collateral ligament, specifically the vulnerable ulnar aspect of the MCP. You might have a weak pincer grasp. If they're really uncomfortable, pain may limit that assessment. And then you need to uh, assess the stability. To assess whether this is a stable or unstable injury, you want to take one hand and stabilize the metacarpal. And with the other hand, you want to take the distal thumb and apply a radial stress to evaluate the ulnar collateral ligament. If you get more than 30 degrees deviation, you may have a potential unstable injury. And in addition, if you have pain with that maneuver, there's almost certainly an injury to the ulnar collateral ligament as well. Okay, so 30 degrees when you apply a radial force, 30 degrees that would be of the MCP joint. The other key is when you're doing this maneuver to go ahead and do it with the other side. Most clinicians actually start with the normal side first to gain compliance with your patient and understand that some folks may have some inherent laxity, so you do have a normal side typically to compare to, so please make use of that. One of the other pearls that if you have the thumb extended at the MCP joint and you're testing for that stability and you're not quite sure, you can also flex the MCP a little bit and try again that radial tension on the joint, and that also sometimes can pick up a, a tear that might be missed with the person that's been splinting the injury because of pain. I know that one's hard to visualize, We'll also have some visual material in the written summary for you to look at. So when we see the patients in the clinic, sometimes the swelling has gone down. So we usually ask the patient to point to where their point of maximum tenderness is. And uh, if it's over that ulnar collateral ligament, we're going to do the same testing for the stability of the joint because we want to know, is it a partial injury, which means that the majority of the ligament is intact and it will heal with the splint after six weeks. If there's some instability in the joint, then we're worried that it's been a complete tear of the ligament. And that allows the proximal end of the torn tendon to retract and sit above the aponeurosis so that even if you try to reduce the two ends of the tendon by protecting that ulnar side of the thumb and the thumb spica, the two ends are separated by the aponeurosis and it will not heal. So you could have the splint for six weeks and they still have a chronic injury. 
And at that time, six to eight weeks, it's too late to do the repair because the ends have contracted. So then they end up having to have a reconstruction, which is a much more prolonged to pick a hole through the bone and harvest a tendon for somewhere. So that's why these injuries are really important to pick up early on, whether they need surgical intervention. So we often think of them a little bit like appendix cases in that if we're suspicious about a complete tear, we'll take them to the operating room even for an exploration or uh, an MRI urgently if we can, because we don't want to miss something like this. The key for the eMERGE doc, I think, is to understand the mechanism of injury, examine your patient, put them in the appropriate splint, don't take any chances, and make sure that they they do get reliable follow-up. And generally, the best outcomes with these that do need surgery are if they're surgerized within one week. Yeah, we'd like to see them within the first week so we can get that organized. Bring it to me! Let's move on to case number three. Case number three is that of a 40-year-old mechanic who was at work using a grease gun and a break in the hose caused the grease to blast into his left index finger. He reports that there was only a little bit of pain and swelling, but was told by his boss that he had to go to the ED to get it checked out. He sees you about two hours after the injury occurred and tells you that the pain seems to be getting worse with time. So, Dr. Arkham, this patient has sustained a high-pressure injection injury. What is a high-pressure injection injury, and why is it often an elusive yet potentially devastating diagnosis? This is potentially a scary case, as you've alluded to. So any liquid, grease or paint or hydraulic fluid under high pressure can cause significant injury. This liquid is under high pressure and it releases when it hits the skin. The fluid triggers an intense inflammatory response that can lead to significant ischemic injury and sometimes can actually go on to unfortunately having the patient require an amputation. You get the injury from the nature of the pressure as it dissects out the tissue planes, causing neurovascular compromise. You get injury from the nature of the material, so it can be cytotoxic. And then you can get secondary infection as well. It's elusive because in the early stages, it can look relatively benign. You may not get the story that it's high pressure, so it's really important to be very clear when you're talking to your patients about the mechanism of injury with respect to what happened and to get from them historically that this was high pressure. Even though it looks relatively benign in the early stages, over time the finger becomes quite edematous, very pale, and can be terribly tender to palpation. This is also significant because the amputation rates can be as high as 30% with these injuries. Essentially, you need to consider it as a compartment syndrome of the hand until it's proven otherwise. I think the pearl may not be to remember all of the specifics, but recognize that that patient coming in with a high-pressure injury is in a really precarious scenario and to act accordingly. Okay, so a high-pressure injury can be considered a potential compartment syndrome until proven otherwise, as you mentioned. In our last episode, we discussed compartment syndrome of the leg and some pearls about the six Ps of assessment for compartment syndrome. Why is it that compartment syndrome of the hand is considered to be an even more elusive diagnosis than compartment syndrome of the leg? You may not get the same paresthesias that you do with the limb. The motor deficits may actually be subtle. 
and you can't reliably measure compartment pressures in the hand. So really it's a clinical diagnosis. Another good pearl is to have a look at the patient's hand and how they're holding it. And what you may see is uh, the MCPs in extension and the PIPs in slight flexion, taking the, the pressure off that tendon as best as they can. Mm-hmm. That's the so-called intrinsic minus position. Like a claw. Like a, a claw, claw, right. Hand. So when they come in with a claw hand, then that's when you should worry about compartment syndrome. Got it. Okay, so Dr. Arkan, how can an x-ray help you out in a patient with a high-pressure injection injury? You know, they come in and they say they got blasted by some liquid on their finger and their finger's a little bit red and a little bit swollen. And we don't normally think about doing an x-ray. Why should we be doing x-rays in these patients? It may tip you off to the nature of the injury from the fluid. You may see subcutaneous air. And if it's a lead-based liquid, the contrast in the image may give you a hint as to the extent of the injury. And in terms of how we should manage these patients with the high-pressure injection injury in the ED, what should we be doing with them? So this is a true surgical emergency. This is a case where you work them up quickly and call your hand specialist at that moment. The definitive management in these is early surgical decompression and debridement. And Dr. Tate, could you just give us a description of what you do when you take these patients to the OR? Yeah, they have to have a general anesthetic. You have to follow the path of that injection injury and decompress the fascia around the finger. And you just keep going until it starts to look like normal tissue. You leave it open and splinted and elevated. And this might be a, a, a one case in a career. It's not that common, but the key is to make sure that you recall that it's significant and have the appropriate action. So the real key to diagnosing this is not to be fooled by seeing just a little bit of erythema and a little bit of swelling if they get there early after the injury, that if you get any history that this was high-pressure fluid of any kind that injured them, you've got to assume that this is a high-pressure injection injury. Get your surgeon on the line, elevate the limb, start your antibiotics, and get them prepped for the OR. So that's high-pressure injection injuries. Let's move on to our fourth case. Our fourth case is that of a 30-year-old man who was at work on his farm when he punctured the volar part of his index finger with the tip of a dirty tool that day just prior to seeing you. He comes into the ED because of increasing pain and swelling. On exam, he has an exquisitely tender and swollen finger that he's holding in slight flexion. What are you worried about in this patient in terms of what he's injured or what the possible diagnosis is? Well, I'm worried about infection with a red swollen finger. And uh, if the puncture wound is near the flexor tendons, then uh, we're worried about a contamination of the flexor tendon sheath, which can lead to uh, tenosynovitis. And uh, one of the things when you're looking at the patient then is they can be holding it in slight flexion. So you're trying to decide, is it just a cellulitis or is it a flexor tenosynovitis? Because the outcomes are different. If it's just a cellulitis, you're going to treat them with splinting and elevation and antibiotics. But if it's a flexor tenosynovitis with involvement of the flexor tendon sheath, it needs to be operated on surgically to decompress it and irrigate it. We leave a drain, actually, to, to continue the irrigation. They need admission. Those factors that help to differentiate cellulitis from a tenosynovitis, they both have a red swollen finger, kind of a sausage shape. But with the flexor tenosynovitis, they're exquisitely painful if you try to straighten the finger out. So that's one tip that's quite useful. 
The other is that if you press over the flexor tendon sheath on the volar surface of the finger, away from where the laceration is, they'll also be very tender, as opposed to maybe just a, a laceration where it's sore, but you know, you're, it, it won't be sore too far away from the laceration itself. So those two factors are really important in helping to make the diagnosis and alert for the emergency doctor to pick that up and give us a call. Okay, so tenderness along the flexor sheath and severe pain on extension of the finger. Those mm-hmm. are really the two things that distinguish it from a simple cellulitis. Yeah. There are cannibals for cardinal signs of flexor tenosynovitis. Two of them are what you just mentioned. The four of them are, one is the finger held in slight flexion. Two is a fusiform swelling. Three is tenderness along the flexor sheath. And four is pain with passive extension. And the other interesting thing is that you can sometimes get this without a puncture wound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my understanding is that flexor tenosynovitis can be infectious, and most of the ones we see in the emergency department are infectious, and then some of them are inflammatory without any infectious component Mm -hmm. at all. But, but when it's a red swollen finger, we still. But we, we still, still, yeah, we, we just got to assume that it's culture and all that kind of right, stuff. Right, yeah. yeah, we assume it's a, an infection cause yeah. until proven otherwise. So, Doctor Tate, why is it so important to manage flexor tenosynovitis in a timely manner? Well, if this is not picked up right away and treated, it can lead to permanent adhesions between the flexor tendons and the sheath, and they'll have a very stiff finger. They won't be able to fully extend or flex, so it's a permanent disability. How are these patients usually treated? Well, they need IV antibiotics, splinting and elevation. And sometimes we'll just treat them with IV antibiotics for the first 24 hours. If you're not sure 100%, we usually treat them as a suspicion. And if they're not better after that IV antibiotics for 24 hours, we take them to the OR and explore it because we just don't want to take a chance of missing one of them. But sometimes it's pretty florid when you're seeing them. You don't have to wait the 24 hours. You just know, hey, this is the real thing and you'd go and admit them. That's why oftentimes for any upper limb infections, we we like to hear about them as plastic surgeon as opposed to medicine for admission with IV antibiotics. It's really for this injury that we don't want to miss. So we don't don't want this type of an injury to be admitted to medicine for IV antibiotics because it needs the surgical eyes looking at it so that it doesn't get missed. So we've just talked about two relatively uncommon diagnoses of the hand. Uh, let's talk about something that's much more common. A 25-year-old, otherwise healthy woman presents to your ED with a five-day history of increasing swelling and pain around the fingernail of her left third digit. On exam, she has an obvious huge paronychia. So Dr. Arkan, this is, as I mentioned, a very common condition that we see in the ED that's relatively simple to diagnose, but the variety in management strategies I see out there is really quite remarkable. Can you review for our listeners the best management options for paronychia? Well, I think if you have an early paronychia without abscess, you often can improve the outcome with simple soaks, PO antibiotics, and perhaps some topical antibiotics. But there's limited evidence for this. The key is to understand when you have an abscess that you need an incision and drainage. To do this, you need obviously anesthesia, whether it's lidocaine or potentially marking. Oftentimes, these guys present 
just before bed because they can't sleep because their finger is so sore. So personally, I use marking quite often because I think it gives them uh, longer analgesia, and I'm careful about describing that they'll be numb for the length of time that it takes the marking to wear off. But what's important is to understand how to go about doing the IND. So you need to cleanse the nail plate and surrounding skin with your appropriate antiseptic. And you want to complete a blunt dissection with the tip of a sharp instrument or a point of a surgical blade. And you want to elevate the lateral nail fold. You want to enter the sulcus between the lateral nail plate and the lateral epithelium. And usually at this point you get good purulent drainage uh, when the sulcus is entered with the instrument tip. As you're carrying out the procedure, you want to elevate the lateral fold of the skin and irrigate with uh, normal saline uh, using a catheter tip syringe. So again, ensuring that you have good irrigation. The other important point is to ensure that your patient has really good follow-up care and post-procedure care, including soaks to keep the wound open and draining whenever possible. So when you have a really big perinechia, like in, in this woman, and let's say you've done an IND and then you've got this big wound that you've opened now, you have a big cavity. How do you deal with those? You have two choices. You could encourage the patient to soak to keep the wound open, or you could consider putting a wick in. That wick will uh, prevent adhesions and allow the, the abscess to then slowly heal over time. And then sometimes the perinechia is so bad that it actually tracks under the nail and even lifts the nail up, the so-called floating nail how do you deal with those when you know you have pus underneath the nail? Depending on how things look, uh, you may need to remove the nail plate. Having said that, if you can get away with a small wedge resection of the nail plate, not taking the full nail out, it really depends on the nature of where the abscess is and how far it's tracked over uh, to the ipsilateral side. Dr. Tate, let's say you've got someone with a perinechiae, and sometimes these perinechiae actually end up involving the pulp of the finger. In other words, they have a, a felon. Dr. Tate's now going to describe a bit about the pathophysiology of a felon and how we should treat it in the emergency department. The back of your hand, if you move the skin around it, it really moves easily, whereas at the fingertips, it's quite adherent. And the reason for that is that the skin from the fingertips has to be fairly stable for sensation. So there's a lot of septa between the skin and the underlying bone and they form little compartments. So if you get an infection in there, it's exquisitely tender and it feels very tense. So those are the clinical features that give you some concern that there's an abscess. And they don't drain well, these felons. And so just treating with IV antibiotics, it just doesn't get better. It's exquisitely painful. People will be back. So what you have to do is decompress those little compartments. It's not an easy thing to do. So if you have the opportunity to just refer them at that stage to the hand surgeon, we'd be happy to see them. Now, if you don't have that uh, opportunity to refer them, what we try to do is preserve the nerves to the fingertip because that's so important postoperatively. So your centering your incision is going to be where the draining site is, and you need to detach this, the little septa from the skin to the bone along the whole length of the distal phalanx, not just locally, and that's really the key to having these people settle down in a reasonable time. If you just release some of those bands, then they're going to linger on and they can get necrosis of the pulp and lose the, the soft tissues of their fingertip and require amputation sometimes too. So the two ideas are trying to preserve the neurovascular bundles and you're trying to keep your incision away right from the very center of the pulp if you can. 
you want to have a longitudinal incision, you want to try to avoid the neurovascular bundles, which are on either side of the pulp there. So you're going to try to keep your incision on the periphery of the pulp, either at the tip or the sides. And if it's related to a perinicchia, it's often closer to one side or the other. And uh, make sure you do an adequate release so that you don't have to go back. And we usually pack them. And it's important to take a culture. Because along with MRSA and that around, sometimes even these little perinicchia have MRSA and it's good to find that out. They're usually admitted for IV antibiotics, elevation, splinting, and dressing changes. Go ahead and take care of business for me, for me, for me. The next case is that of a 40-year-old radiologist who comes into your ED on their day off after sustaining an injury while golfing. While golfing, she was going for a long drive and she hit the turf instead of the ball, resulting in a sudden onset of pain in the palm of the hand. She was tender over the hypothenar eminence and an x-ray of her hand and wrist appeared normal. So Dr. Arkan, what diagnosis is this eMERGE doc missing and how would you manage this patient? Well, look, this is a very common injury with uh, radiologists uh, participating in their leisure activities on their days off. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. This is a classic story for a hook of the handmade fracture. So if you listen to this story and looked perplexed, then I'll encourage you to, to listen further because this is something that, that we can very easily miss. So typically, hook of the handmade fractures occur with a, a fouche, a fall on an outstretched stretched hand with an avulsion of the hook, or more classically, this type of injury occurs when a club or racket or bat is forced into the palm with direct pressure on the hypothenar eminence. The fracture is actually difficult to see on an AP or lateral view of the hand. So the pearl with this is to consider it in your differential, examine the hypothenar eminence, and then order the right x-ray. And you may need to add an extra view, which might be described as a carpal view or a carpal tunnel view, or a 20-degree supinated lateral view. So this is a case where you discuss with your radiology colleagues what the the next appropriate view should be and add it, and you may actually see a fracture on this view. You also need to understand that this fracture also may be a cult and you may not see them on plain films. So with the right clinical suspicion, you need to consider immobilizing them and they may need a CT scan or other imaging. So non-union is common with this injury and sometimes the fractured piece may need to be excised. Sure. So just to review there, the mechanism of injury is either this sort of racket or club or bat sort of sports injury to the palm or a fouche, which is probably the most common upper extremity fracture mechanism we see. So it's important to think about it in these patients who present with fouches who have pain on their hypothenar eminence. And we need to order a carpal tunnel or a carpal view if we don't see it on the plain x-ray, which we often don't. And even then, if you don't see it on that view, if you suspect it highly enough, if they're really tender on that hypothenar eminence, then those patients should be splinted and they may need a CT scan at a later date. And of course, this is also important because there's a high rate of non-union and they might actually need surgery for this. Yeah, my understanding is it's quite common in professional athletes, baseball players in particular, and oftentimes because of the risk of non-union, if you need to get back playing, some athletes will prefer to have 
the fracture excise primarily because they're back at their trade earlier than if they wait in an immobilization for six weeks and then to decide to have the fracture piece excised. Let's say you've uh, you've done your carpal views and you found that this patient has a hook of the hamate fracture. How do you manage them in the emergency department and how are they managed later on? So these need to be immobilized and typically a volar splint with your MC joints inflection fourth and fifth would be acceptable with a referral to the hand clinic. And in terms of when they are referred, if they do need surgery, Dr. Arkan, you had mentioned excision of the bone. Well, typically we wouldn't excise, we'd give it the six weeks to see if it's going to be a non-union in a regular patient. And if it didn't heal, then you'd go on and excise that fragment. But initially you just have them in their splint for their six to eight weeks and see how they made out. So next time you see a patient with a foosh, mm-hmm. what I've always taught is patients with a foosh, you should be looking distal to proximal, you're looking for a scaphoid fracture, you're looking for a distal radius fracture, you're looking for a radial head fracture in adults, in kids you're looking for a supracondylar fracture, in older people you're looking for a proximal humerus fracture, and then even with a foosh you can get a, a clavicle fracture. And that's usually what I teach my residents in terms of when you know that the patient has had a foosh, those are the fractures you should be looking out for. So you can add to that list the hook of the hamate fracture, especially when they're tender on the ulnar side of the hand and the hypothenar eminence, and you seem perplexed why you can't see it on the x-ray. In the last section of this episode, Dr. Tate is going to describe the most common errors that she sees emergency docs do when it comes to hand emergencies. Often hand sutures are uh, they're over joints and uh, they probably should be left in at least 12 days so that you don't have a dehiscence of the wound afterward. So we'd prefer they'd be in a little longer than the usual you might place on another part of the body. One other point may be that sometimes bleeding is difficult to control when there are partial injuries or the dermis is injured. So uh, really, we just want pressure and elevation. We don't really want to be uh, clamping off anything because the digital artery sits just underneath the digital nerve. So uh, if you're putting a clamp on the, or a small snap or mosquito on a digital artery, or even if you think it's a digital vein, it may be an artery. So you could be causing some damage to the digital nerve, or we wouldn't put a suture in those areas, just pressure, elevation, and then skin sutures. One of the things we see sometimes is where people have had an abscess in their hand that's been drained and emerge, and they come back for clinic, and it's just not improving enough, and we wonder, uh, is it an MRSA or something more unusual? So it's quite helpful sometimes to have those cultures done from the abscesses in emergency departments. We can refer back to them if uh, they need be. Now, often if it is an MRSA that comes back on the culture, if the wound's getting better, we're not going to treat them with antibiotics, but it's more for the people that are not getting better that we'd like to have that initial culture. Finally, the PIP joint is an interesting structure in the hand. It has to have tremendous flexibility, yet it has to have some stability as well in extension. And if it's immobilized 
for more than a couple of weeks in extension, there can be permanent changes to the collateral ligaments around it, and it can lead to permanent stiffness in the finger, which is, can be really disabling and needs a lot of physio and may not even respond to physiotherapy. So even a normal PIP joint that's held in extension for two weeks can lend up with some permanent deformity. So a general rule is to try not to splint the PIP in extension for more than two weeks. So we, again, if you're any concern of the PIP joint or proximal finger fractures and you've immobilized the PIP, you really need to get them be seen and assessed within that two-week period so we can get that joint moving if possible. A good example of this is a mallet finger, whether there's a fracture or just a tendon avulsion, we really want to just immobilize the DIP joint in extension. We never want the splint to extend to the PIP. So for a mallet fracture or, or a sprain, we want to immobilize that DIP in extension for six weeks. And usually we're happy to see them back for follow-up after they've been seen in the emergency department a week later. And usually every week we change the splint for them because it gets sweaty and sometimes it doesn't stay on long enough. We really have to tell people to be religious about keeping that DIP extension for the six weeks or they have to start all over again. The only time we'd really immobilize the PIP in extension is if there's a laceration right over the extensor tendon or a boutonniere kind of deformity. And those ones, again, are going to be referred to plastic, so you don't have to worry about them as long as they get in to be seen within two weeks. If you want to do Next, we're going to give you Dr. Tate's best case ever when it comes to hand emergencies. We had an interesting case that was presented through the emergency department with a young man who's a laborer, and he presented with tingling of his fingertips and pain that had occurred from the day before when he'd been mixing some cement. And we had concerns about why his pain seemed to be much greater than we would see just topically. And when we questioned him further, it turned out that he had some exposure to hydrofluoric acid. And with that information, then we were able to think about how we could deactivate the hydrofluoric acid. And rather than doing injections into the fingertips or pulp, which sometimes you can see in the literature for some of these more massive injuries, really for fingers and hands, you can just put the calcium gluconate gel in a glove and they can wear that glove on the hand for 24 hours and he noticed some improvement in the return sensation within a few hours of the emergency department and we were able to let him go home with gloves in place as he was a reliable patient he'd come back if there were any problems and the next day he did return and still had some sensation loss but uh, his range of motion was improved and we could tell that he wasn't going to have any tissue necrosis. It's a rare injury and it was good to see a good result in a a pickup from that history, that kind of numb, tingling feeling to the fingers, which was a little unusual. Mm-hmm. So hydrofluoric acid, even if you don't see much on the skin, it can really penetrate deep and cause major significant tissue, tissue damage. damage. If it was a whole limb, then we might get into problems with renal failure and needing intramuscular or intraarterial injections, but not for the hand itself. And also the fact that he had no necrosis 24 hours after his original injury was also a very good sign for him because usually if you're going to get necrosis, it's within the first 12 to 24 hours. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode. 
For next episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Jordan Chenkin, who was with us on our ultrasound episode, and Dr. Jamie Blicker, who's new to emergency medicine cases, and we're going to be discussing procedural pearls and pitfalls. Before we go, I'd like to leave you with this month's quote of the month, and this one is, again, from Sir William Osler. Nothing will sustain you more potently than the power to recognize in your humdrum routine. As perhaps it may be thought, the true poetry of life, the poetry of the commonplace, of the plain, toil-worn woman with their loves and their joys, their sorrows and their griefs. So until next time, take it easy.